return. The scent jumps and jostles. Nausea drops me back to the floodplain I fled. The taxi driver asks, do you have some mixed blood? He says, you have an old world face. I let my eyes flare as he drives me past the split where Walnut Grove divides cropland from Greenway. On the farm side, heat gleams on shoulders screened corrections. Workers in the cotton still in chains. Past the test plots, past the longhorn pen, barbed wire blooms into razor. Packing, I stacked books in boxes like green husked walnuts we left curbside every spring. On every corner, an alabaster cross. My parents made sure we lived among other mezuzahs. Mid-step, I stop where Sweet Pea climbs the chain link. I sketch, invert the corners, erase, retrace, render the storefronts, available, available, available. Follow the beams someone felled, someone planed, someone nailed in place. Farmers set tomatoes bottom-up to hide the spokes of scars around their stems. Sweet heirlooms rest on a folding table, easy like the fat gold fruit I was born to. I know to visit before I point out what I want, pass my cash, take a bag, and have a blessed day. In her driveway, Minnie hugs my neck, says, what'd you do with all your hair? Inside the news, a robbery, a gun bust. She says, they need to go get a job. I nod and sip my tea, the chill of her AC blowing. We lean almost as close as when we'd visit over the gospel radio. She asks what my parents won't. When are you going to give your daddy a grandbaby? And just like our Sundays on the phone, I say, I'm all set. When my parents packed up, she got a pension. My stomach growls. Minnie says, I don't need much dinner. As I'm leaving, tell your mama I need a raise. My knife plumbed to a warped board. I set to core a tomato. Imagine the slip of teeth clean through, the drip of seedy water into the sink. See the rabbi beam as he tells me how, after King's assassination, the whole city sat shiva. No riots here. My teeth tingle with an anger he might not approve of. He says, people are used to the lifestyle. It's so affordable. Here, my money gets me double the bouquets of basil, double the sinuous summer squash. 
I buy pounds of peaches to slice at breakfast, slurp alone in the still afternoon. Who did I choose when I wished myself elsewhere? Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Han Vanderhart, and you've been listening to Rachel Edelman read from her debut poetry collection, Dear Memphis, forthcoming from River River Books, January 2024. Rachel Edelman is a Jewish poet raised in Memphis, Tennessee, whose writing explores diasporic living. Her poems have appeared in Narrative, The Seventh Wave, The Three Penny Review, West Branch, and many other journals. They have received material support from City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, the Academy of American Poets, Mineral School, Crosstown Arts, and Tin House, and finalist commendations from the Adrian Rich Award, the Pink Poetry Prize, and the National Poetry Series. Edelman earned a BA in English and Geology from Amherst College and an MFA in Poetry from the University of Washington. She teaches language arts in the Seattle Public Schools, where embodiment and care root her personal, poetic, and pedagogical practice. Hello and welcome, Rachel. Good morning, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And it's such a pleasure to sit again with Dear Memphis and read this morning, you know, despite having read it multiple times through editing and publication, um, it is such a powerful collection that knows itself. And I mean, there, there are elements of the book coming into print, I think, too, that like, because I read the interior this morning, the designed interior, and with the scripted titles, and when you talk about your cursive and writing, it just, it feels embodied in a really incredible way. Um, and that's just exciting to be a part of this process with you. Absolutely. Albin Fisher has done an incredible job translating that um, imaginary work into the materiality of the text in a way that I just, I couldn't have conceived of. Yes. And while we're talking about um, the design of the book and how it came to be, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how your title kind of emerged for you through your editing and, and creative process and work with others. Yeah. So this manuscript went through many iterations, as most poetry manuscripts do, I think. And for a series of years, maybe three years, I was sending out a manuscript that was about half of the poems in Dear Memphis were a part of that manuscript called um, Another Exodus. That's the manuscript that was a finalist for the National Poetry Series, uh, for the for the Crab Orchard Review contest. It, it, it got some readers, um, but it didn't get picked up. And after about three years of sending that out, I found myself in the Tin House Summer Workshop, the summer of 2020. Um, summer of 2020, meaning it was online. And I was attending um, Amy Nazuka Matatil's workshop um, each day from right here where I'm talking to you now from my home office, which is the same home office I was teaching from. And 
one uh, and um tin house is mostly a manuscript conference like you come with work and it gets critiqued and it's it's wonderful i like can't recommend tin house summer workshop enough it's so it's such a beautifully curated space and um amy nazuka matatil is a generative teacher and she I think she was just not about to have us like come and critique and not create. And so each day she gave us a new assignment, a new prompt. And one of those days, the prompt was um, an epistolary poem. And in introducing it, she um, gave a, a series of examples of types of epistles one could write uh, to someone, to to an inanimate object, to somebody who has passed, to somebody who is an ancestor or somebody in the future. And then she gave an example of to a place. And I'm pretty sure she said, oh, like in Rachel's poetry, she could write Dear Memphis. And I was like, I could write Dear Memphis. And, and, and like, I may be remembering this incorrectly. She may not have actually said that, but in my mind, she did. And so I wrote what would become the Dear Memphis poem. Oh, yeah, it starts, um, Dear Memphis used to be your green sky afternoons. And that poem came out pretty much fully formed. And then I just kept writing them. I just, like that that workshop week ended, and I just kept sitting down every morning and writing Dear Memphis poems. And that's not usually how I write. Usually I'm like gathering scraps for a long time and then sort of piecing them together in a collage to create the lyric but these were not that and so by the time I felt like I had worked through that impulse I had like 10 pages of Dear Memphis poems and I also had this energy to revise the manuscript to um to throw out about half of what I had thanks to a talk from Solma Sharif where at that same Tin House summer workshop where she gave an incredible talk and in it said something along the lines of if you're going to write about another person's pain, you have to be willing to live with that pain the rest of your life. And with that, I like I knew what I had to do. Wow, that is really powerful. It's it's incredible to hear that it was both because I mentioned before we we began the conversation that a manuscript is often publication by a, a thousand edits. It feels like, but that you had a very clear demarcation like there was the generative aspect that you like really wrote into and then there was also the pairing aspect um I always think about the revision knife <laughs> so like that that's one of my favorite tools is like when something just isn't working isn't working it's like it's so much easier sometimes just to cut it like you don't have to frustrate something into being <laughs> like you can like let it go yeah, yeah and at the same time like I um, I really, really believe in revision. I am somebody who will turn, like, like the poem that became Palinode After Pharaoh's Decree mm. was a two-page poem that became a five-page poem that's now a two-page poem again. 
and I really, I, I have a lot of um, faith in the like radical revision process. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got that, those sort of twin influxes of energy, the generative and um, the deconstructive, it, that's the energy that went into making um, Dear Memphis, that like gave Dear Memphis the self-assuredness, I think. Of what it is now. Yes, and I mentioned to you earlier that I can't—I can't imagine your book being called anything other than Dear Memphis, and it feels for me kind of what Diane Seuss's work did for ekphrastic work for me, which was to make it just a living, breathing, exciting form of art again. Um, because there was definitely a period where I was like, oh, like phrases, like so boring. <laughs> and it was because the poems I'd been reading were kind of dead. <laughs> and, and what I saw in Seuss was like so living. And um, and that is how I have often felt towards the epistolary, um, especially because I grew up reading like 19th century novels or like epistolary novels that were just written in letters. Um, but what you've done with Dear Memphis is such a living, breathing um, it's just like the way it offers you a touchstone into the city and yourself and your memories and um, tactile experience and um, the South, right? The complexities of the South um, and that we best understand them when we are in relationship to them. And to write a letter is to be in relationship. Um, and I think that's such like relationality is very much at the heart of dear memphis yeah yeah i think that for a long time i was i was trying to write about memphis and about um, my family and our history there in a way that would like encapsulate it I, i felt like i needed to distill it or crystallize it or um somehow place it on the page and what the epistolary has done for me is um is let me address it like it's so it's so simple in some ways but it was really radical for me to actually um address it as a relationship to address it as a connection as a living breathing thing as something that is not in the past entirely something that is in the present as well and um that changes and i think that the the title being in cursive on the front of your book um the titles of the poems being in cursive they're so it's very kind of an anti um computerization even though it's like designed that way like it's meant right it's artifice but that artifice gets us to a, a place of thinking about um made things and like human made things and i mean i'm i'm sure i'm not the only one who's recently been in a conversation with someone explaining like ai generation and being like oh it's so incredible what ai can do oh it's so incredible look at this story it can generate but i think a lot about the relationship like the things that ai can absolutely not not right um and i'll probably die on that that hill (laughs) 
I mean, I talk with students a lot about that. I think the AI has gotten worse with, like over the last six months even, which has made it more helpful when I'm talking with ninth and 10th graders who are using paraphrase bot. Um, but even like when it was doing an okay job, say last February or March, um, they, I would, I would see them using paraphrase bot and, and I find, um, I'm not, I'm not a person who wants to like come down hard on anybody for something that they think that they're doing to help themselves. And so I would often, so I would see students using paraphrase bot and would ask them like, do you think, which sentence do you think is better? The one that you put in or the one that it spit out? And they'd be like, well, the computer does it better, right? And I was like, well, does it? You tell me. And actually, if there's a word that the computer used that you liked, go ahead. Like, go nuts. Um, but make sure you understand what it means. Look it up. And and it can create a good conversation about like how are you making choices about how you use the technology that we have. So like, I love that I have these scripted, these beautiful brushstroke cursive, um, this typography in this text, because it is what our designer Albin has chosen, because it is um, a creative choice that he made in line with the creative choices I make. And that like furthers our collaboration rather than distancing us from each other it like brings us closer together yeah no thank you for everything you just said I think that's so helpful to hear and I mean it is it's humble work to constantly look up words but I mean we do it every you know I I do it every day I did it before this podcast when thinking about your use of palinodes and I never actually had really sat with like, what is the relationship between a palinode and an ode? Like, you can hear it in it. Like, what's going on there? Um, no, I want to look that up. Yeah, it's it is so it, it's really interesting too because I just spoken with um, Stephen Leva on episode thirty nine about specifically um, odes because Stephen writes a lot of odes and in Lauren Camp's and I in each square. I was just looking over the weekend at Ode for Two, which is a really beautiful poem um, in that book. Can't recommend it enough. Um, but then the force, like the, and I mean that in the sense of like power that the palinode has as a form of rejection. And, and you brought up the term counter narrative. Would you like to say more about that or read us a, a, a palinode or both? Yeah. Why don't I read... Ooh, actually, I think, I don't know that I've read this one aloud, but um, I'll read Palinode After Family Movie Night. And um, a little context for this. Uh, so Tevia, uh, who appears in this poem, is the protagonist of Shalom Aleichem's short stories, uh, Tevia the Milkman, and was made into the movie and musical Fiddler on the Roof. Palinode after family movie night. Tevya was a rich man. 
His horse couldn't pull a cart, but his own thick trunk could steer the milk to town and come home to a clean towel, candlesticks at rest on the table. No one fled. A hundred years later, my brothers and I settle wheels of cheese into straw. We mark the rhymes in Yiddish, a language we breathe in, a language we never abandoned. Thank you. Rachel, can you tell our listeners who might know what a palinode is um, and why you are attracted to, to engage with it in Dear Memphis? So I just looked up palinode and it has a different definition than I um, work have worked with. And I think there it's an expansive form. So I'm sure I'm sure my definition also works. I know it as um, sort of a an alternate history or um, an alternate point of view that one can go back and either rewrite or express. Um, and I guess it is also a retraction of a previous point of view. So, and, and I feel like that's more of its um, direct connection to the ode. But I, I am attracted to, I'm always attracted to contradiction and, um, and argument and counter. And I find that to be a force that that continually gives and gives and gives to me um the force of anger the force of um intense desire against a status quo and the palinode opens up a window into into envisioning like i think when I was a teenager and with the teenagers I teach, there's a real impulse to like tear it all down. And I love that. And I love the energy that comes behind that. But like there's a symmetrical energy that that the palinode generates of like, well, what happens if you do? What happens if you take back what you said? Or what happens if like this thing that we thought happened didn't? Or this thing that that did happen and devastated us like what in this poem what if the pogroms didn't force us out of the russian empire like where would we be what would our lives be thank you for that i yeah that gives me a lot to think about um and i think in terms of i mean i grew up in a very um I mean, now I would say it's like a textually fetishistic Protestant way of reading, right? Like it's very wedded to the word. Um, and there's always like, oh, there's one way of reading something, right? There's one way. Um, and of course, being having gone through grad school and just it was constantly an opening up of like, oh no, there are very there are many ways to read. But it was it was such a um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. It was just total um that certainty that total certainty of reading um and i think it it was really my first experience with a jewish professor at georgetown reading milton 
the first time I asked a question in class and he said, I don't know. And I think I just about fell over because I'd never had someone in a position of authority and power like say that to me. Like, I don't know, because everyone around me always knew, like they always do. And I think that that form like of multiplicity with the text of not knowing of, um, you know, if you think about negative theology or, um, and that's something that poetry does especially well and that your palinodes really understand that there's like opening up to possibility to other story to the many different ways stories are interconnected stories can play out with each other um so thank you for talking about that yeah um, and i'll say like that that palinode mm-hmm. actually opened up a real desire in my life like it helped me realize that i wanted to learn yiddish that I wanted to study Yiddish and now I am studying Yiddish and I am, I am like very, very slowly learning the language that my grandparents used to keep secrets and um, that the Jewish labor bund used in their anti-Zionist internationalist socialist organizing. Like this is language that um, the ethno-nationalist project of Israel has tried to kill. They specifically have pivoted all of the, um, the Jewish learning and textual engagement toward Hebrew, toward modern Hebrew, um, which was really invented in like the early 1900s away from these ancestral languages of Yiddish, of Judeo-Arabic, of Ladino. There's so many diasporic languages. Yiddish is just one of them. But it's the one that that actual like that belongs to me and that I'm starting to learn. So the palinode is not just a thing on paper, right? It's when we're thinking about what work does poetry do in the world? It's like, what work does the poem do in us, those of us who write it and those of us who read it? And the work that that poem did in me was to say, okay, like, it's time. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, because I was just speaking with, um, with Erin Malone about the end of a her poem her final poem inside a disappearance where the narrator puts on the bear suit that this bear has taken off that she then puts on the bear suit and she said like that was a surprise to me that was a total surprise to me and so I think that the way like poems are smarter than we are and they are they exist in a kind of a different space time than we do and they can open us up to desires that we didn't know we had um into different relationships with power and um and I I love to see that you're comfortable returning to something multiple times to like you don't you don't just check a box you're not done with it like the way dear Memphis poems that like that's so powerful that they thread throughout the book that your palinodes thread throughout the book um there's like a fidelity and um a promise that comes with it's like 
I don't know, I, and I know you work with students too. It's like if a student uses a word and then they use a string of, of, of strange synonyms and you're like, why did you, why couldn't you just use this word that you use? And they're like, well, I already used it once. And it's like really sweet. But I'm also like, please use the word, you can use it again, use it again. Like it deepens, it enriches. It's not like, oh, we're done with that word. No, we must find a synonym. <laughs> Bless students. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just thinking about what you said about, um, about uncertainty and, um, a sort of attend, like a respect for uncertainty and the, the trope in Jewish dialogues is answering a question with another question. Um, and I think that that's a great way to live is um, question after question after question, because like with these Dear Memphis poems threading throughout the book, kind of like, like fence posts along the way, they're guiding me from question to question, from address to address. And like, they couldn't have just existed, say in one section, they couldn't have been one long poem. Um, and I don't think that they could have been a chapbook by themselves they needed like the other substance around them of um of the the artifacts and of the various of like the ekphrasis and all of these other pieces need to be there along with the longing because if it's just if it's just the address if it, then it becomes that epistolary novel where it's so distant but when the address is amidst all of this other materiality, this like substance of life, then it becomes much more intimate. Yes, and the intimacy is apparent from the opening pages of Dear Memphis. And this brings me to um, a question about how the speaker in Dear Memphis pushes back against expectations of gender and reproduction and um as as a short-haired person who gets a lot of unwanted comments on short hair um from my own mother uh, <laughs> to like bring in like that was really powerful um and the kind of the grace with which the speaker in dear memphis navigates um the you know the figure of many with questions and parents and um also I really felt a lot of connection with um, the brothers figures being so far away and difficult to get to um, and having a lot of like deep sympathy with, with that distance and connection. Um, yeah. What did you, did you have something you wanted to say about, about counter narratives and about, because it's, it seems just so much a part of also you dealing with environment and I mean, it's, you can't really extract family and um, religion and environment and place. Like those things are just imbued with each other. Yeah, they're, they're all layered all within each other. I think actually my study of geology really helps with that because I, so I just happened into a geology major at Amherst because it was a great department and I 
um, Amherst doesn't have distribution requirements. You just like fulfill a major and you take a certain number of classes and you graduate. But um, I had heard that the geo department was really cool and you got to have labs outside. And so I started taking classes and I just kept taking classes. And I mean, my the geology professor who ended up being my advisor, uh, Dr. Te Dr. Tekla Harms, who is certainly a model in like countering gender expectations and um, roles told me that when she saw me in this first lecture, she knew, she knew I was hooked. And um, I, so in so like you look at, at a rock and you're like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, what can I learn from this? Um, or how can I piece this apart? And geology taught me that there are a lot of different ways to piece it apart. You can do it from a structural lens. You can do it from a mineralogical lens. You could do it from um, a like a stratigraphic lens. And there are all of these different, um, I mean, it's sort of like critical lenses in critical theory, but it's it's more physical. And for me, it has helped me as an approach to poetics to be able to come in and be like, okay, this is more of a this is more of a like prismatic poem um, that's just like turning this one idea around in the lyric versus this is a more um, stratigraphic poem where we've got like a lot of collage layer upon layer upon layer versus like this is a more of a um, structural like forces coming together. I'm, I'm making a motion with my hands of um, a convergent plate boundary, <laughs> like one plate, one tectonic plate subducting beneath another and all kinds of wild stuff would happen. So just knowing that there are these various different levels on which to study um, earth systems and to have spent time learning how to do that, I was not like I, I didn't have the attention to detail to be a great scientist, or I didn't, I decided not to cultivate the attention to uh, accuracy and precision to be a great scientist. But studying geology has helped me to, to work on these different scales um, and, and be comfortable, I think, working on these different scales. So um, I can, so I, I feel all of these different forces on different levels of place and family and um, gender relationships and culture and language. And they're all components of the whole system. And it's sort of a question of like, which ones of them are at work in any, at any one time, like the brothers kind of come in and out of the of the book they like they're always kind of there but they're also distant but they're also present and there's that foundational intimacy of um of sibling relationship that is there and also the 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 difficulty or the challenge of what happens to that intimacy after the childhood home is gone? And I think that's like one of the one of the big questions of Dear Memphis, 
um, because those those brothers like they're they're there at the beginning in one way and they're there at the end in in completely different ways yeah go ahead <laughs> oh just go that ahead. you you foregrounded this conversation by talking about answering a question with another question like that we don't have to answer everything that's in our books that's like that you know that that we can leave things open um and in dear memphis that's you know that's part of the diaspora that's part of aging that's part of um you know choosing your own path and also it's always going to be in relationship to your family but it is also yours and so it's just like those things I think the word that keeps coming up for me lately is tension that like we hold these things in tension it's not we're not getting rid or cutting out or it's it's there but um how we engage with it can be very different yeah yeah and like the ways that the speaker engages with it in one context might be um really contrary and really combative and in another context might be um more evasive and it all depends on both like the physical surroundings the setting but also the interpersonal surroundings this is an aside but you write really beautifully about food and i'm so glad you mm. read return because i i find the engagement with like food in that poem so lush and so loving and um just so full of pleasure and, and awareness because it's a very like, I mean, we're not talking about like foie gras. We're talking about like a tomato or, you know, like I loved, I loved how um, kind of central and, and I mean, it's something to like understanding like the beauty of simplicity when you're thinking about an image in a poem, like it doesn't need to be the most complex thing in the world. And in fact, it's the attention of looking at something very closely um that's very powerful um, yeah that's very much like my sense of the image too I, there are so many poets I love who like build beautiful systems of images and complexity my dear friend Gabrielle Bates being one of them whose images just like I will never forget some of her images um they just they just roll through my mind all the time um because of their layering and and that's like a certain beautiful type of poem that I don't write <laughs> and I I think for me it's a question of like what what can I precisely hone in on in any one moment that um, that holds the moment that holds attention and yeah, the tomato, the peach. Yeah. These are the things that hold my attention. Well, and also, I mean, since we feel like it's almost Chekhov's gun, like if you've talked about, if you've mentioned the crisis, like I'm going <clears> to bring <throat> up um, your poem, yeah. Where Else But Here, which is after the migration series by Jacob Lawrence. And this poem takes, part of it takes place in the gallery itself would you like to read us a little and or the whole poem or whatever sure. you like? um i'll read i'll read the whole thing you can cut it as you wish where else but here after the migration series 
by Jacob Lawrence. In the gallery. Expecting a sequence of ascent, we pause, look at the suitcases, shuffle, shuffle, the white judge. In the crowd's funnel, I scribble, I turn, shuffle, stop, at packed-in ticket lines, at whites with shotguns. Travel is proceeding as it should for those who should be traveling. Over my pencil's scratch, I hear, excuse me, and retreat from the frame to let a man past. But he eyes my notebook, asks, do you know about this? I say, some. He asks, is it true? I say, yes, it happened. He asks, how? Panel one. At the platform, every migrant's stiff overcoat obscures a neighboring figure. Perhaps one weighs the options. St. Louis, Chicago, New York. Perhaps another flees a labor-hungry employer who remains outside the frame. Features fade into the movement, each figure's capped brim shading another's profile. Behind cross-hatched partitions, skies streaked like wash water. To portray the collective requires erasure. Panel two. The white steam shovel driver. One hand on the lift, one on the throttle. What do I know about exile? I circle these panels, these pasts press on. In the gallery, you don't just say, here you go, to children. Look at that engine. Mmm, mmm, that skinny little boy. Are they thumbnails for something bigger? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Can I ask about your pendant? Look at that nail. Do you see the hammer? Panel 57. I sketch her roughly to scale. Minus signs for knuckles, those I can handle. My pencil struggles to place the steep black rectangle of drying rug or drape Lawrence brushed from the top of the frame to where her black arms depart from her shoulders, her perfectly bisected white shroud swathing the washerwoman at work. Am I allowed here? I thicken the 57 on my version of the frame's bottom right, so close to the end of the 60, still standing with the cotton threads she stirs. I see her face split through, her umber wash stick sunk in the swell of opaque water into which she stares, churning a turbulence. Panel 2. 
Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, the many layers of art. Many, many layers. Yeah, yeah. Um, those those galleries were many galleries. Um, in 2015 and 2016, the migration series was on tour. All 60 panels. The um, the the series is is um, housed at two museums. Um, typically at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Phillips Collection in Washington D.C. And for a couple of years, it was on tour all together. And so I saw it first at um, at the MoMA in New York in the summer of 2015. Um, I went twice in the space of like four days. And then uh, in Seattle, I saw it in, um, I think, the spring of 2016. So those galleries sections were from across those experiences incredible so the exhibit I mean the traveling and the migration of the series itself um yeah yeah I just now realized that <laughs> the series itself was migrating yeah and you were sketching or the speaker I should say uh, the speaker <laughs> of the poem <laughs> a little slippage there um yes the speaker and I were sketching yes <laughs> I know I mean it's it's what it, again it's the tension like the line we walk is that I mean I am almost always very happy being like yes that's me in a poem but also you know acknowledging a made thing that that we make it yeah the poem's yeah made. yeah I mean like I in order to write about the series found myself um, sitting in front of the website for the ex the exhibition, um, which is still up and still a great teaching tool. Um, found myself sitting like in front of my computer and just in my notebook, like sketching out in pencil what I saw um, as a way of coming into conversation with it, as a way of thinking more about these paintings that I that I had just like circled and circled in the galleries and so the speakers and and the speakers um sketching becomes a stand-in also for the writer and for the for the act of like making the thing um because of course Lawrence was also representing a real historical event of the great migration yeah and I think that the I mean I the layers of, of gaze in the poem um and this speaker looking at the art engaging with the art very attentively and consciously and intentionally and the way I, I I've always like I cherish these moments when um someone sees someone else engaging with art differently and that gives them pause um and so like the double the double looking that's happening and the watching the person who's watching or the attending to the person who's attending um and I think that that's because a lot of times when I've taught um creative writing at Duke I will have my students go to the Nasher Art Gallery and ha like as their final exam they actually write a phrases poems in front of art of their choosing 
in that. And just, it's different. It just engages differently and it pushes back against we look. Like the idea that we just, we're in some ways that we're voyeurs, that we just go and absorb and consume and look. And um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with looking, but when it takes all the pressure of our attention and there's no other, like that it's, it's good to have multiple forms of attention and it's good to engage differently. Um, and your framing of like asking questions. Um, and there's something, it's a little like when you love a poem and you write it out by hand to be like, how does it feel to write these lines? Um, there's something of that, like just engaging your body more. Um, yes. Yeah. The kinesthetic piece of it is huge. I remember when I was first working with the migration series and, and like drafting my first poems about it. Um, I told my then teacher, Linda Beards, that I was working with and that I was, I think I told her, I like, oh, I'm copying the paintings down. And she said, oh, with watercolors. And I was like, oh, that, that would be a good idea. But like, I don't really know how at that time I had never worked with watercolors. So I was like, nope, I am just drawing lines in a notebook. I am. So like, there are all of these different forms, of course, that we could translate into. Um, like Linda's first thought was like, oh, like maybe Rachel's doing this in watercolor, but but I was doing it in pencil and maybe somebody else would do it in like crayon or somebody else would do it. I don't know. Um, you could, you could certainly represent those paintings in like collage in a really interesting way. They're so geometric and, um, each one of those representations would be distinct and would be the artist's own interpretation. And like, and in doing this, I realized like it takes a lot of thought and process to turn that representation into a piece of art in its own right. It's not a translation. Mm. It is its own. It has to be its own point of view. Yeah. And then the poem gets to hold all of it <laughs> with room, with room for expansion always. Um I think I really love the way the form of the poem that you have different panels on different pages and that it opens up the page like a gallery space too. I think that attention is really important. And there is an element that like as teachers, you know, I, I kind of, I want to say we teach looking, but we really teach attention and stillness and like being able to be still in front of art when everything about our bodies and our nervous systems really loves movement. <laughs> so um, I was, I watched this little clip, like an interview with Mr. Rogers, and he was saying, you know, the people in my life who've given me the most, they've given me silence. Um, and they've allowed silence. And that's not a gift we give to each other very often in like a world where we're all about information we're all about noise um, and making the space for silence. And I thought that was so powerful. And the way he said it, like it almost reminds me of like how you read your poems, which is like carving out this space and making this space 
not having to like rush in, but like being able to sit with the syllables, the lines, trusting the narrative, like your narrative is there and it's like with the speaker and waiting with the speaker. Um, and there's something very, just that level of attention, I think is powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's something that I'm always working to cultivate in myself and certainly in my students it's it's a real skill and something that um changes as we develop as we as our brains change and age and something that um something that changed a lot in me over that has changed and continues to change over the course of the COVID pandemic, um, that like the quality of my attention depending on the medium is really different. And that I, I have certain really um, visceral responses to, um, to specific types of stimuli. Like it's really hard for me to be in crowds now and there are specific ways that I do that every day, like standing in the hall of my gigantic public high school <laughs> where I work. And that I, um, there are there are ways that I physically manage that that are really different from how I would have in 2019, and the ways in which my um, my physical and like psychological capacities have changed. And I think all of ours have have changed in various ways. Um, I've just attended to that in, there are a few poems from Dear Memphis that do that, but certainly like in newer work as well, it's really attended to that. And I feel like I don't want us to um, not talk about water in your mm. in your book. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I, I don't want to leave that out of our conversation because it's it's important for for some of the erasure work you do, um, which I always um. want to talk about. And and it just it feels it feels right for thinking about migration and um travel and movement and all kinds of I mean it, it ties in with the kind of the conservation thread and the environment threads and also thinking about families it's just it I think it's one of those really powerful metaphors to um to talk about a waterway a body is also to talk about so many other things it's a social it is a social thing as well and I'm wondering if there's a way that we can talk about the water and your poetry in Dear Memphis and also, I mean, there's so much light. And I love that you have both like a nocturne and an abad. Is there more than one abad? No, there's just the one abad. Or oh, one, there's one like titled abad. But it's they're... so powerful. That's why I'm like thinking mm-hmm. of it as multiple. It's gorgeous. A gorgeous Thank Paul you. Rachel. I think Uh-oh. of it as like such a small poem, but I love it. It's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah. So... But also thinking about um, solidarity with Palestine and thinking, just thinking about the way our work touches the work of others, our art touches 
the work of others um and you know what it what it means to make art in a country with so much violence in a i mean you're a teacher you you live in a work in a space where we're reminded all the time of how vulnerable we are as educators and our students and i make a slippage when i speak about my students a lot of times i say my children by accident because mm. like, there is like yeah. you're caring yeah. for them you're caring for them sometimes many more hours than their parents do you know like there's a relation a real real relationship there too so um yeah i think going back to yeah. relationship and dear memphis and the many ways you acknowledge its work and and your work and your activism in, in your life and um, practice yeah i think of water as an excellent timekeeper that water waters um, shifts and um, having grown up on a floodplain um, I mean Memphis is a bluff city it's high up above the Mississippi River but it has tributaries that flood and of course it is the black neighborhoods that are on the lowest lying waters Um, and so those are the neighborhoods that flood that get inundated that and and um, Memphis is a city that is too poor to hide its problems that things are on the surface um, or at least the way that I grew up um, going to public schools and having a family that was really engaged in civic life my grandfather was on the school board um, my grandmother taught in the Memphis City Schools and uh, in in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. She was a reading specialist and had started a Girl Scout troop there. Um, and um, and so the water, like the the flood seasons and the dry seasons and the seasons when the water the water is great and the seasons where the water is too low and all of these like water forces us to pay attention to our environment and um and so that that quality of attention that we were talking about um partially has been for me cultivated by those ebbs and flows of of waterways and um and I think like one of the ways in which I mean there are so many ways that I've come into working in solidarity with Palestine as just an extension of a lot of my community building work but I remember one of the early ways was certainly learning about water access and lack of water access for communities in the West Bank. Um, A close friend of mine in college spent like a summer in um, Israel and Palestine and um, came back with like maps of like how how people in certain um, neighborhoods in East Jerusalem would access water versus ways that people in um, West Jerusalem and like the Jewish part of Jerusalem like didn't have to do that that wasn't part of their day like thinking about how to access basic infrastructure and so like that 
that very tactile, tangible lack of access and um, attention to necessity was was very clear to me at the same time as like I had seen my grandparents, as I said, very attentive to community and social need and um and I, and at the same time I'd seen like people in my shul that I grew up in attentive to certain injustices and not others attentive to like specific needs and and really callous toward other needs and so when I when I started learning about Christian Zionism I was like wait like why are we allying with these like why would why would any Jewish people ally with these people who want us eliminated who quite literally want us gone and the tension between that became really clear and I've I've never been one to keep my mouth shut or um keep my opinions to myself so it became clear that I that like my opinions were not acceptable on Israel in my community when I was a teenager um and so I think the like the timekeeping of that like okay this, this was this is a watermark and then there have been many, many other watermarks along the way. I thought for, I spent about 10 years outside of Jewish community because I thought I couldn't be in Jewish community and hold the knowledge that I do about um, the Israeli apartheid state and the occupation of Palestinian land. And... Then I moved to Seattle and I discovered that anti-Zionist Jews exist and that there are communities of us. And actually we're like have existed for a really long time, long, way, way, way longer than Zionism. That And that was, and for me, like obviously in Dear Memphis history is really important and layers of historical archive and um, genealogical history are really important and that is a history that was hidden from me. Maybe maybe a history that was deemed unimportant, I don't know. But that history of of diasporic of of a Judaism that is at home in the diaspora was not something I knew existed until uh about 2016. So only in the last, what is that, eight, seven years have I known that there is, that there are Jewish communities working in solidarity with Palestine and living a full ritual life. So the watermark of this moment to me is really important as as Israel is perpetrating this genocide in Gaza and in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, it's um, it's another watermark moment because the there's like this narrative right of the established um, 
dominant Jewish organizations like the Jewish Federation and um, and the Reform Movement, the um, Union of uh, American Hebrew Congregation slash Union of Reform Judaism that I was raised in, are saying, no, 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 real Jews aren't calling for ceasefire. Well, guess what? Like, we are real Jews, and we are calling for ceasefire. And this is like another instance of this counter narrative being so important and older than the narrative itself, than like the dominant narrative and the work that we have to do right now is to elevate that, to be steadfast in it. Um, well, of course, centering the voices and the lives of Palestinians who are the ones being affected and terrorized by this right by by the Zionist narrative. But like I think it's really important for those of us who are Jewish right now to say no, to say no, like Israel cannot, does not, will not stand for us. Absolutely not. Because that that narrative is new and it's wrong. Thank you. Thank you for, for saying that. And I think the the metaphor of water and the watermarks like is really helpful. It's interesting. I mean, just I think of time and um and the idea that, you know, the counter narratives as as being resistance and as being so oh, just so cleverly buried. Um, I think I mean, I, I don't use it myself, but in grad school, the idea of master narratives, um, that there are master narratives and they, they master and um, not to be strangled out by them, I think. And I think what you're also saying is so important, I think, for a lot of people who've, who've felt very distant from their own faith communities because, like, we feel like we can't identify with with how they you know they kind of read read the world for us um and finding communities that are radical enough that are progressive enough that um don't just use that language like it's something you like check a box off but like they actually live it um is so important and i mean i think growing up in the south i i have a lot of longing for people who grew up with like white parents who were engaged in the civil rights because that was not my parents you know my dad mm -hmm. was like literally in the military literally and so it's like when you when you meet people like that I'm always like this I just have a lot of longing that it's like that's so incredible that you to have a legacy of like involvement and engagement and you do so much in dear Memphis with drawing our attention to these sites of injustice or um social inequality or i think about even the poem where you talk about the public this or not the public but even talk about the swimming pool and that block of ice being lowered in the summer and you could probably say the final line for me which I'm, i don't want you to couldn't bring it. guests yes yes that was the jewish community center my children learn to swim at our JCCs. <laughs> yeah, these spaces, these like privatized, cordoned off spaces um, 
while while they are like sites of loving education and care on one hand they are also sites of exclusion and um economic barrier on the other hand and you know the jewish community center is also where i went to summer camp where every day um in this day camp that i went to probably from when i was like six to eight um every morning they raised an israeli flag and we sang hatikva and that's where i learned the israeli national anthem like that is that is a site of indoctrination into um into what there's a there's a new documentary out called israelism about the way that um sort of my generation um of Jews born in the 1980s and and probably in the 90s um were raised in this fervent zionism and and so i think of it now as israelism because of that documentary and its its coinage mm. and it's um so so like there's certainly the freedom and love of swimming that i learned there i i still love to swim and to be in water and the freedom and the the embodied feeling of that is something that i learned in that space in that same space where i was taught allegiance to an ethno-nationalist apartheid state and so i think growing up in in the south we see those contradictions all the time everywhere and part of i've realized in my like i've i've spent now 18 years living outside of the south and in that time i've it's taken me a long time to like get comfortable with this positionality but i think my my a lot of my work is to say this is everywhere it's just more visible in um in a in memphis but this exists everywhere in seattle it's just wealthier so it can like kind of paper over but the same things are happening absolutely and i can't remember i really want to say i heard alicia ostriker say this but you know texts we've read blend into so it's quite possible i just no i think i did hear her speak this at an early awp where i was a grad student and she was talking about i think it was like an activism and writing panel um it was you know war my brother was going off to iraq like so i was like really upset about this and kind of spoke to her after um but one of the things she said during the talk was i will wrestle with this angel for blessing um and she was specifically talking i think about working with scripture which as soon as i use that word scripture i'm like i'm being so protestant here but i'm um, specifically talking about like working with sacred texts and the difficulty and the violence and um but that it is that there's like a wrestling that happens um and i thought that was really beautiful and powerful and it's so much it's so much better than avoidance it's so much better than i mean there are a lot of other ways we can approach really difficult subjects but 
as my therapist recently said to me, you not speaking out about this wasn't an option for you. And I was like, no, it was not. <laughs> Thank yeah, you actually so that, um, can I read a poem? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so I, and I'll preface this by saying like your, your comment from Alicia Ostriker about like wrestling with this, um, as Jews, we often return to the image of, uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel and that, and like that, or supposedly with the angel, like we don't know what he was wrestling with, but in his dream, he was wrestling with something. And then he woke up and he had a new name, Yisrael. Um, so he went from Yaakov to Yisrael and that's, the image that um that our rabbinic sages that our pedagogy kind of circles around is this wrestling always always wrestling um so this is what i know of god benjamin sat in the dip between god's shoulders rocking side to side when god swung god's arms God's arms must be so tired, so strong. Oh God, I cling to the back of your ankle where your skin wrestles itself into folds. I've made it hard to reach me. Benjamin held your neck between his legs, his dick at the base of your skull. Grown as we are, we are still your children. We still stand tense when your foot disappears in the sand. When Benjamin entered the narrow place, how did you turn from his hunger? The sight of your face, it would kill us. Yeah, that's the only poem that I have in conversation with a male um, biblical figure. The rest of them are pretty much oh no actually that's not true i've got moses okay never mind <laughs> um but i think of moses as like i think of moses as very gender fluid for some reason um maybe he like really he goes out and he does things he goes out and he has to stand up to power a lot Maybe that's part of it. I always found Moses very relatable because of all the stuff he doesn't want to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like the way he's so resistant. It was like, oh, I just don't want to do that. And I, that for me was always a, a real line of sympathy. Yeah, he really doesn't want to. <laughs> so resistant. And I feel that. <laughs> yeah 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 i just loved this midrash that uh the in this poem that um a dear departed friend introduced me to of like i think the it's of benjamin he sat uh at god's shoulder or something i have it in the notes for dear memphis and like huh we all have like these different positions in relation to the divine mm -hmm at any one moment hmm i've made it hard to reach me yeah that that contrary that resistance always there that is such an important part i think of sacred texts and all the tensions and the wrinkles and i think 
the older I get, the more interesting, more, yeah, the more interesting just resistant characters and um, the un, the people who do not get one over, the bad-tempered, the un, unclean, like the, most of the characters, the obsession with the unwanted of society um, and those who are pushed to the fringe that those become those narratives become more powerful i think also the narratives that um that it feels kind of circling back like that the dominant narratives seek to hide or seek um or the narratives of the powerful seek to suppress and so there's like an equal and opposite force thing happening at least for those of us who are attended to it yeah and it's I think it's really frustrating when you are aligned with a faith tradition or you're part of one or you're near, you're adjacent to it. I think there's so much white supremacist Christianity that is so happy to flatten every narrative out and to make it easy reads and to fill it with certitude. And that is not the work of I I hope I dearly hope that's not the work of poets that we do things <laughs> we always do things the hard way that things are more difficult um and I mean I don't want to read a certain poem I don't want to read a self-satisfied poem that just has flattened the world into knowing as much of a temptation as it can be to write those poems I I, I will admit that but I think that dear Memphis really really sits in the space of questions um while i think writing in very concrete and substantial and um inquisitive and particular ways about itself in its sense of place and i think that all you know as as editor i will say that like all the collections that we've chosen for River River Books. They do that so well. Even though for Jennifer Sutherland books, I think it's more of a, a psychological and a, a mental and thinking space than it is even, it's not as bound to environment and landscape. The way um, Lauren Camp's work is, the way your work is, um, but always, always these collections that they just do something powerful with with place and space. So I'm I'm just excited to welcome your book into the world, and I hope our listeners get their hands on a copy as soon as they can. Um, and yeah, just wish yes. the best things for dear Memphis. Oh, thank you so much, and just a plug for our listeners if they're gonna. I think this this will be out by then, but I'm going to be touring a bit with Dear Memphis, going to be at AWP and then um, in Brooklyn and San Francisco and uh, Portland, probably. And um, and then in this. So those will, those dates will be in February. Um, and then in the spring, I'm going to be in Memphis and a few other southern stops as well. Uh, so. I would love to, um, I would love to see, meet, talk with readers everywhere. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah, thanks, Hannah.